This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Chapter, it's a bit of a journey with us, so read it with us and then we'll pray and and get into our time together today in the Word. Um, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab for he and his, with he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died when she was left, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The, the name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived about there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she went out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you To her mother's house, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, and why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go away, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I say I, I have hope even that I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to the people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you, to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so, so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her and returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we pray for uh, just, just the visibility of you and your presence in this text today and that, that we see you, we see um, ourselves, we see our great need for you. Uh, Lord, we see that you are eager for us to return, welcoming for our return, that you desire each of us to return to you. God, I pray today that you give us a spirit, bless us with a spirit of repentance um, in the areas of our life that we have have drifted away, lingered too long uh, in places that weren't of you. And Jesus, that you just remind us the sweetness and the redemption of welcoming back uh, sinners who repent and who, well, and who turn to you. Jesus, we just pray that uh, your, your word um, and your spirit 
speak a grander truth than anything I could say, uh, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear how beautiful and glorious you are. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Welcome to, to Advent with us here at Com City uh, as we're journeying through the book of Ruth. I know that was 22 long verses um, for us to go through, but we want to be really dedicated to kind of journey through this short book of the Bible together. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with Advent or if you never practiced it, uh, this is a common practice in, in church tradition, but it's four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And Advent, as, as I don't know if he said it in this service or not, but he said it in the first service, um, Jeff, who was leading, Jeff and Heather, who were leading our Advent time, um, talked about that Advent is kind of the root word for adventure, and that it's going to be a journey to go and, on an adventure together through the Word of God. But Advent also means arrival, that the Advent season is to anticipate the arrival of our King. Now, we stand where we are in 2022 with the recognition that Christ has already come, but with the expectation that He comes again. And so it's here we find ourselves in this book. You know, I think we're, we're tempted to look at the book of Ruth as just a past tense story of them hoping for the coming king, and they certainly were. But it's also a present tense application and reminder of how we too return to Christ ourselves. You know, I'm excited to, to be here on the heels of Thanksgiving. Um, and even like reading this story of Naomi, it's funny, this book of Ruth, it's called Ruth, but the first chapter, you wouldn't think that Ruth is the main character, would you? It seems like Naomi is. Uh, and then in future chap chapters, it'll seem like a guy named Boaz is. But yet we find that, that it's the story of, of this girl named Ruth that we get so drawn to, and the Lord reminds us of his truth in. And, and as I read through this chapter and have been meditating on this chapter this week, I've even done it in the lens, within, within the lens of Thanksgiving. You know, we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, and it's a joy to celebrate Thanksgiving. Confessionally, probably my favorite holiday, definitely my favorite cultural holiday. I think as a, as a pastor, I'm supposed to rank Easter first and Christmas second, you know, for the spiritual implications there. But, but I love being able to, it's, it's a holiday that's not, with the exception of Black Friday, that doesn't seem to be too t as tainted um, by some of the cultural currents in our day. And, and I've always loved Thanksgiving, but not every Thanksgiving is created equal, is it? Some, it's easy to find reasons to be thankful, and some, it's really difficult. Uh, for some people this week, even in the context of this church, I got to see some, some new friends that were here for the first time because they've recently been born. They were here in our church service in the first service, which means they also took their spot at a, at a Christmas table. There's, there's an, a new, you know, the Olegas says, you guys have had a different seated seating arrangement at your table this year. Um, and, and there's lots of Thanksgiving tables that expanded by one or more in 2022. But there's also Thanksgiving tables that had empty spots and had chairs that were vacant. And those present their own lens for Thanksgiving. And the truth is that we don't choose gratitude or thankfulness based on a circumstance or a context. We choose gratitude and thankfulness because of the creator and the savior that we have in Christ. Right? That in, in spite of our circumstance, our highest celebration or our lowest point of suffering uh, or malady, we find reason to be grateful in the things of Jesus. And it's even in that context that we find this story today of Naomi with lots to grieve and lots to have she has lost and experienced um, still returning to the Lord. In fact, if I were to give you a kind of a hopeful end of our time together today, it's going to be that we find the courage to return to Christ, all of us, and we find the encouragement to pray and lead others to return as well. In fact, I think there's something for each of us in this word today. Um, 
And I hope that it finds you. I hope the Holy Spirit leads it to find you. I know it certainly has found me. So let's look at the first verse. We're going to not walk through every verse, but through quite a few of this first chapter of the book of Ruth. The very first verse, this is in the days when the judges ruled. Now, I just want to give you some context for what's happening here. If you were to, I don't know how your Bible is set up. I don't know if you've got like cool introduction pages to, to books of the Bible, but in mine, Ruth 1, 1 is about six inches from the last verse in the book of Judges. Okay, I got Ruth on the right side of the page. I've got the book of Judges on the left side of the page. And a couple years ago in the summer, we did a, a corporate Bible study here at Com City where we walked through the book of Judges together. In fact, it's the first time I've ever walked through the book of Judges with a group of people. You know, I've read it and had to read it for seminary classes, read it for personal devotion. But in terms of like walking through it with the community, it was the first time I'd really ever done that. And, and so it, it kind of highlighted a lot of stuff for us to pay attention to. And and when I look at Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled, well, what was the context of the days when the judges ruled? Well, flip back one sentence into Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, for everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This, I don't know how your recipes worked out for your Thanksgiving meal, but doing what is right in your own eyes is a recipe for disaster. And the context of the book of Ruth is that when it comes to us being gods, we're terrible gods. We aren't good at it. We weren't meant to be our own God. We lead ourselves to places that we should never lead and places, lead ourselves places that aren't places of promise, places of freedom, places of redemption, or places of fruitfulness or faithfulness. We lead ourselves to eventual places of, of brokenness and despair and great desperate need. And in fact, this is not just about a group of individuals that have departed from the Lord. This is about a whole grouping of people, a whole nation. The whole context of Israel is that they are, are far from God in this season, that there is no king and everyone tried to be their own God. And so it's in this context that this man in verse one, this man of Bethlehem went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now the word sojourn uh, most, most dominantly through the Old Testament means a, a temporary visit stop in. Uh, we're, just, we're just kind of being a tourist, almost nomadic, if you will. And so he, with the intention of his wife and sons, journeyed to sojourn, stay for a little while in Moab. This was not a good choice. Verse one, there, there's no bread. There's a famine in the land. There's no bread in the house of Bethlehem, in the city of Bethlehem. If you know anything about the, the word Bethlehem, it's, it's literally the Hebrew compound word, house of bread. That's what it stands for. Beit Lechem is house of bread. And, and, and the reality of, of what's going on is there's a famine. There's no bread in the house of bread. There's no pizza at Pizza Hut, right? What a travesty. And so it's the same, it's the same kind of spirit that's going on. And, and the response of this man, that we'll learn his name here in a verse, I've read it already, but we'll see it in the text. This man who's from Bethlehem, from the place that's known for its bread, goes to Moab. And I mentioned earlier, this was a, this was a, a bad choice. Moab was one of the worst places you could go. I don't know if you know the history of Moab, but Moab was a man, and, and so his kinsmen um, were people that were really born out of a lot of wickedness and a lot of destruction. In fact, Moab was the was the offspring of a very wicked relationship from a guy named Lot. And he had Moab. And, and the Lord kind of burned against um, Moab and the destruction of, of those people, the people of the Moabites. Uh, in fact, so much so that he said, anyone that's a Moabite, for them and 10 generations will not be welcomed into the assembly of God. And so I find it interesting that there's this guy who we learn his name is Elimelech, um, which literally means the, the Lord is my king, who says anything and everything but his own name. Doesn't live up to his name at all. 
uh, chooses to deny the Lord being the Lord of his king and his land and cross over into Moab. And it's maybe the worst place that he could have gone. And, and for me, as, I, uh, have, as I've read this and kind of meditated on these first few verses, um, it, it's kind of highlighted that there are huge and tremendous ramifications for people who neglect life with the Lord as their king. Now, I'm going to meddle for a minute. We don't use the word meddle that often in 2022. And I don't mean like meddle is what you get at, at um, you know, finishing a race first or in the Olympics. I mean meddle in the sense that I'm about to get in our business. And I say our business because it's mine too. But I'm going to meddle a little bit with guys, specifically maybe even with dads. Because this guy, Elimelech, led his family away from a place that God had promised and provided and to a foreign place to receive all that he needed or what he desired. And so here's my meddling, guys. Do we ever lead our family away from the Lord? This insight landed fully, this application landed fully on my heart as a new husband and a new dad. What are we teaching our families when it comes to about the places that we dwell? If we were to poll your kids and give them a survey and say, um, you know, where does, where does dad or where does mom or dad, where, where do they put their trust? Would they say Jesus? Or would they say they put their trust in their own achievement? They put their trust in their own abilities. They put their trust in their job. Um, they put their trust in their uh, success. Or would they say they put their trust in the Lord? One of the trick questions I have for every young couple that I get to do premarital counseling with is we kind of talk about roles and responsibilities of, of a family and coming together and and expectations and what those are going to look like from expectations in the home to expectations external to the home to work and, you know, to not be people that are lazy, but people that go the extra mile and yada, yada, yada. And I always kind of, uh, it, honestly, it's, it's some kind of giving, showing my hand for any future marital counseling, premarital counseling that I do. I kind of give a little setup and usually I look to the guy and I say, okay, knowing all these things, external, internal responsibilities within your family, external to your family, um, who, who is the you know, who do you think is the provider for your family? And nine out of 10 guys, if not more, say, well, I am. And I'm like, this is a trick question. Because God is always your provider. And if you're not careful, you will create a testimony within your family that the person that's responsible for the success of your family or the person that's responsible for the sustainability of your family or the person that's responsible for the, for the you know, um, satisfaction in your family is you or your abilities or your achievement or your creativity, or, you know, your capabilities, any of those things, rather than the Lord himself. Do we model to our kids that we pursue kingdom principles, to our families? Some of you don't have families in this room. To our friends, to our roommates, do we model what it means to pursue kingdom principles, to, to pursue a life in the, the, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus? Or are we modeling to the people in our lives that they can put their hope in something that has a little less promise than Jesus? What sustains you? Your education? Your ability? Your job? Hopefully it's the Lord. I've heard the quote said before that what we as parents or we as people do in moderation, our children will do in excess. And it's usually said in the context of our vices. You know, whatever vice I have in moderation, my child will have in excess, right? Have you heard that before? Whatever I do in moderation, those that follow after me will do in excess. Well, what if we didn't mean that in terms of our vices, but meant that in terms of our faithfulness? What if our children lived out our faithfulness in excess, even from what we did? I, I've heard Grammy 
Grammy Pammy, for those of you that affectionately know Pam Vernon as Grammy. Um, I've heard her say many times when she comes to discipling other women or even discipling her own kids or grandkids that she hopes that her faithfulness is the floor uh, for them, that, that, that her, I'm sorry, that her ceiling of her faithfulness is the floor for those that come behind her. And we hope that too. We hope that too. I hope that in my life. Jeff mentioned up here on stage um, in the first service and the second that, that their hope is, is that their children will, will see what they can hope for and what they can achieve in Christ. I hope it's not our vices that our kids do in excess. I hope it's our faithfulness. And if you've not, if you feel like you, if we polled the audience, if we polled the crowd on your roommates or your spouse or your kids, and ask them, where do you find your success? Who provides for you? If you're afraid that they would write anything other but Jesus in that, then there's great hope for you today because you can return to the Lord. You can return. And you can begin to model in your house, in your home, what it looks like to have a steadfast trust and hope. In fact, this week, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, has just jumped off the pages of the Bible and into my life and into my heart where it says, be steadfast, brothers, and really to all of us, brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Goodness, what a, what a commissioning to us as men and women, men and women of faith. And so in, the, in verse 1 and 2, just a quick application is don't go to Moab. Now you might be saying, I don't even know where Moab is. I don't know how to get there. I wouldn't know if I tried. What I mean is when life gets hard and difficult, and the going gets tough, and hardship seems to outnumber, bad news seems to outnumber good news 10 to 1. And if you've not lived that journey yet, you will. Okay, I hate to, not trying to be a doomsday prophet here, but you will live that. The Bible promises suffering and hardship in this broken framework of a world that we live in. It promises it. And when life gets hard, don't run elsewhere from the people of God. Don't run away from the place God has promised and provided for you. Don't run to Moab. The enemy will give you every reason under the sun to run and look for provision and resources and hope and fulfillment and satisfaction elsewhere. And the great warning of Ruth 1 and 2 is don't run somewhere else. Run to God. And if you do run somewhere else, run back to God is the rest of our story. Verse 3 and 4 uh, it says that not only did they go to Moab, but they continued there. They continued there. Have you ever noticed that we stay in places of sin longer than we intend to? Have you ever noticed that what we sometimes feel like might be just a, a slight little scratch of an itch? Okay, I'm going to give I'm going to give the mic to the pride in my heart for just a second, or or I'm going to give I'm going to give in to lust, or I'm going to give in to greed or envy or jealousy, or I'm going to give in to my anxiety. Like these places, these loud voices that we might have, we might just give the mic to just a little bit, give the the stage to just a little bit. But if you're like me, if you're anything like me, and I don't want to put this on you, but I have found in my life that I don't linger at sin, I live in it, given the opportunity. What I think is going to be a lingering actually becomes me living. What I think is going to be dabbling actually becomes me dwelling. I have a tendency to do that, and if I'm willing to bet, so do you, and so do all of us. They continued in Moab. They remained there, and what did they see? They, they saw death and destruction. We know that going in, right? We know that going in, that when we live and, and, and adjoin our life into a life of sin, whether visible or invisible, whether shrouded in deceit or on public display, we know that destruction and death accompanies it. And if, if we're not careful, we won't just linger there for a minute. We might find ourselves there 
a decade. We look at verse 4. Um, these Moab, these, her, her sons, her husband was now dead. I mean, Naomi's sons took Moabite wives um, and they lived there for about how long? 10 years. How long do we dwell where we didn't intend to dwell? How long do we live where we thought we would only linger? How long do we settle in where we thought we were only a sojourner? And when it comes to the temptation and the draw and the, the pool and the, the pool and the, and the manipulation of sin, the truth is we stay there a lot longer than we ever intended to. Verse 5, in the midst of her dwelling, not only was her husband taken away from her, her sons died. And it says in verse 5, and both Malan and Chilion died, so the woman, Naomi, was left alone. She was left alone. You know what sin does? It always leaves you alone. It always isolates you. Now, you might be surrounded by people. I don't think we're going to blow away. You can pray that we don't. We might be surrounded by people. But the truth is, is that when we live waiting in our sin, we'll find out that we'll wind up there alone. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus talks about this. He says, the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Christ comes that we might have life and have it to the full. But the enemy comes so that everything that's full about life be taken away from you and you be left to live in the wake of it completely by yourself. And the truth is, is we stay there isolated until something or someone stirs or awakens our heart to return. And we see that in Naomi's life. Verse 6, something stirred in her heart. Now we call that stirring repentance. Now you won't see the word repentance in, in Ruth chapter 1 if you're reading it in English, but if you were reading it in Hebrew, you would. In fact, the word return is the word shub. And the word shub throughout the entire chapter and really throughout most of the Old Testament means uh, it, it's kind of a predecessor to the Greek word that we have the understanding of repentance, like God-gifted repentance. And, and that Ruth was returning to the Lord in verse 6. So she arose with her, with her girls, her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, or I'm sorry, Naomi rose with Orpah and Ruth, and she returned from the country of Moab. She repented. Something stirred her heart to repentance. Now, what did it? It's right there in verse 6. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. Oh, this is such a good testimony, you guys. I don't know if, if you get as excited reading this text as I do, but this is a welcome expression of God's character, that he's a God that gives, and he gives in spite of what's been given to him. He gives in spite of what anyone deserves. In fact, the, the word visit, if you were to read this in its original language, comes with the assumption that he's shown up to punish. You ever been caught by dad doing something you shouldn't do or by a parent? Okay, I remember one time specifically, I used to feel like my mom was a pushover. In our kitchen growing up, like had a little, we had a little bar and, and there was a pocket door. Do you know what a pocket door is? It's kind of the door that slides into the wall. Okay, so we had a little pocket door that slid into the wall and would, would shut off our utility room, which was also the entrance to our garage. Okay, you with me? You got my layout of my house. So I'm sitting at the kitchen table. Mom's giving me some instructions. I'm maybe nine years old and I sass my mother. Now, I don't know if you had rules of sassing your mom in your house, but I had some strict, staunch rules that I wasn't allowed to backtalk my mom or to sass my mom, okay? And um, I'm sitting there sassing my mom, and here's why. Because I know she's a pushover, okay? I know that even if she punishes me, punishes me, I'll just fake cry, and she'll feel sorry, and I'll feel sorry. And I had this wickedness in me at nine years old, all right? Like, this was already fully on display in my life. And so mom says something to me, and I, like, hit her back with some sass. And here's what was funny. That pocket door slowly opened 
And my six foot five, 300 pound father was standing on the other side of that pocket door. And he was like, son, what have we talked about talking back to your mom? And immediately my response was to run from my room because my dad couldn't find me there. You know, like he caught me like by the back of the neck. I was like, we're going to deal with this. You know, and it's like that, that instance of like, I could say if I was reliving that story, I was like, I was talking back to mom and dad visited. Okay, like he showed up, like his presence showed up and with it came the expectation of punishment. And the word that's used for visit here is that God, that that an authority shows up and he shows up to correct. In fact, that word visit used here in verse chapter six is used overwhelmingly through the rest of the Old Testament as to punish or correct. But in this context, it's used for visit. Now, why is that? Because God is sometimes surprising in the way that he visits. The people of God, the people of Israel, they've been disobedient and detached and departed from his way for, for not just days or weeks or months, but for decades. And God visited them in their fields, visited them in their city, visited them in their midst. And how did he visit them? Did he visit them with punishment? Did he visit them with penalty? Did he visit them with, with wrath? No, he visited them with grace. He brought them food and a famine. He brought them harvest. He visited them with blessing, not cursing. And this is a great display of the character of God, a welcome expression that we have a God that gives and surprisingly gives. You know, there are some church contexts that I could say, have any of y'all ever been surprised by what God gives? And there'll be some people talk back to me. Be like, yes, sir, I have. Amen. I have been surprised by what God has given me before. Well, that's a testimony that we have as a Christian is that we are regularly surprised by the grace that he offers us. And then he gives us. He give, we deserve one thing, but he instead gives us another. We don't have to earn it. He gives it freely to his people. And Naomi, even though she was distant and far off and detached and in a foreign land, his grace to his people was always intended to draw the heart of Naomi home as well. In fact, this, this illustrates the perfect patience of God. We see Paul write this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Uh, 15 and 16, verse 15 and 16, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, meaning you better pay attention to it. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But I, Paul, received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who would eventually believe in him for eternal life. God didn't start being patient with, with people just in Paul's day. God was patient in Ruth's day too. And he was patient not because he just woke up one morning and decided to be patient. He was patient because in God's vantage point, he didn't see Ruth isolated. He saw Ruth in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is really good news. God hates sin, doesn't he? Of course he does. He hates it. But he didn't bless Ruth just because he felt giddy that day or joyful or it was Thanksgiving and he's like, might as well. He didn't bless Ruth or Naomi here in this story because uh, he was winking at their sin. He, he blessed the people of Israel and even the people that departed like Naomi and, and the family of Elimelech. He blessed them because he blessed them as an overflow of the work that Jesus was one day going to do on the cross. The view of the cross was in full awareness of God when he decided to pour out his provision on the people of Israel in the days of old. He did so not with a surprise that Jesus would show up, but with the knowledge that he would show up. And so God didn't just see Naomi's despair or the people of God's despair. He saw Christ's satisfaction of his wrath that would be The New Testament writers would call this a divine forbearance that for centuries God was patient with his people because he knew that Christ would come. Can we testify of the goodness of God this morning in the light of that? 
that we have a God who loves to drown us in grace. And he doesn't love to drown us in grace because he's cool or because he like, you know, needs, a, needs like a, a, an ego boost. He drowns us in grace as an overflow of the work of Christ on the cross, which is the most exalting act that anyone has ever done in the history of the world. He drowns us in grace because the blood of Jesus covers us and covers those who run to him. And so if you're here today and you need to drown in the grace of God, run to him. You're not too far gone. And think about this in this story. If all you've ever lived in is sin or all you're living in is sin, then your view of God can get distorted or tainted. And you can start to view the Lord through a sinful lens. You can start to say things like, well, I don't deserve grace. Or, man, I, I've, I'm too far gone. I've had too many chances. Or, I can't have, there's no purpose or plan. God couldn't have a purpose or plan for me, Andrew. You, you're not aware of what I've done. Or, I've ruined my chance. Or, he's got to be angry with me. I remember when we were first planning a church um, in a little community called Irishtown. There was a neighbor, a man named Donnie. He had a, a, a pretty, um, pretty intense uh, rap sheet that would follow him as, as around town and in community life. And I remember meeting with him one day in the street, and I invited him to come worship with us on a Sunday morning. He was like, Andrew, I, I, uh, I couldn't come in that church. The building would fall in. You don't know what I've done. You have no idea what I've done. But by the grace of God, I saw Donnie sit around our table and share meal after meal after meal um, that we were celebrating the goodness of God. And listen, the roof never fell in on him. The floor never dropped out. Because there is no wrong you can do that would undermine the redemption made possible through Jesus Christ. You're not too far gone. He's not too frustrated. In fact, he's surprising in the way that he gifts you and graces you. Won't you return to him? You know, we heard the summers up here in our Advent time talk about uh, a hope in, in a family member to return to the things of the Lord. Don't we know people like that? Aren't we that? Aren't there times that we need to wake up and return to the things of God. If we were to pause, we're not going to do this, but, but we could, we could pause and we could pray for the Naomi's in our life of people that we are keenly aware of that have walked a few steps, maybe even a few miles in the wrong direction, that have buddied up in the wrong communities, that have, that have started to live life in a way that forsakes the Lord. And we could pray that they return to the Lord and we should do that. But we also have to turn that lens on ourselves, And I can look at ways that I quickly depart and I linger and I dabble and I find myself um, trying to reap from a place that isn't a place of harvest and trying to expect from a place that's not a place of promise. And so I need to pray for Naomi's. I also need to be Naomi. And I need to return to the Lord myself. We find that something is still missing in the life of Naomi in verse 7 through 14. Um, she does not have the spiritual gift of an evangelist. Does she? What does she say when people are, when she's returning to Israel? Don't come with me. <laughs> Don't come with me. It's fine. You know, you go back to your gods. You go back to your house. Don't come with me. I'm going to go to mine. So evangelist, she was not. But God still uses it in spite of this, right? Like Orpah was easily convinced that, she, that there was nothing for her, that Naomi couldn't provide anything for her. But then we see Ruth. Then we see Ruth. What does it say that, that, that Ruth did? She clung to Naomi. Now, did she cling to Naomi because Naomi could save her? No. She cling, clung to Naomi because Naomi's God could save her. Now, I'm going to give you this today. There are people in your life who will be saved by the grace of Jesus because of your faithful obedience. You know that? There are people in your life that you know right now 
that will find hope in Christ because you chose faithfulness. Not because you saved them. I want to be clear. But because your faithful obedience in a God that can save them will bring them with you. We see it all the time. In the New Testament, we saw it with four dudes carrying a cot. They were faithfully obedient. And what happened? Their buddy got saved. Their buddy was healed. We see it all the time. There are people. There are people in your family right now right now that don't know Jesus, that will know Jesus one day because of your faithful obedience or because of your kid's faithful obedience. I don't know the timeline God would use, and I don't know that that's true in every circumstance, but I do know that God will use our faithful obedience to bring other people to a saving knowledge of who he is. This picture of what going, what's going on with Ruth, where she's clinging to Naomi, even though Naomi told her to go home, is a picture of conversion. The last sermon I preached here in the book of Daniel talked about the wonder of conversion, and we get to see one right here. And when I say conversion, I want to be clear. It's not, oh, she decides to have a Christian worldview or to vote like a Christian or all this stuff. No, no, no. She was dead and now she's alive. That's conversion. She was far from God and now she's near. She was an enemy and now she's a friend. She was fatherless and now she has a father in, in God himself. That's what conversion looks like. And Naomi, when she, or Ruth, when she's clinging to Naomi, offers a confession of conversion. She says, I want my people, your people, Naomi, will be my people. And your God will be my God. I put no confidence in you, Naomi, to save me. But the place you're taking me has someone that can save me. And it's your God. It's your Jesus. They didn't know him as Jesus then, but it's Jesus. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. You know, sometimes it's amazing to me that God uses messy, broken people. The best display redemption. Do you think Naomi had an impeccable Christian resume? faithful resume of what it meant to follow the Lord. She lived in a foreign land for 10 years, stayed there. Devotional life probably wasn't great. She's going to go out on a limb. Didn't have a Bible because those were only, even the, even the word of God was only found in Israel. So she had no access to the word of God. So she wasn't like doing her quiet times very well, you know, like um, was living totally isolated and, and in despair, um, had loss and grief all around her, Sounds to me like probably was struggling with a lot of bitterness and depression. Like Naomi doesn't look like the model Christian, does she? Doesn't look like the model follower of God. But yet God uses her, God uses her to even create a saving faith in someone else. And here's why. Because it's not the cleanliness of your faith that's impressive. It's the person in whom your faith rests. Now, here's a story for you. You know the story of the people of the Old Testament. They were, they were enslaved in Egypt, and a guy named Moses was going to lead them out. If you haven't seen The Prince of Egypt, or the, you know, go Netflix it. It'll catch you up on this really quick. Okay? And the last plague that they were going to have was that God was going to send an angel to pass over Egypt, come over Egypt, and, and anyone that didn't have what? Does anybody know what the, what the specifics were? They didn't have something on their doorpost. What was it? Anybody didn't have blood on the doorpost of their house, the angel of death would kill the firstborn in their home. Okay, that's pretty severe. That's pretty harsh. And the reason that he did this is this was going to be a sign to the, to the Egyptian people. The people of God were going to put the blood on the doorpost, right? And the people of Egypt weren't going to do that. And they would be left in the wake of a lot of, uh, of, a lot of hardship and a lot of death and a lot of loss. And that God would be known to be God over Egypt and over Israel. Okay, so this is what happened. So can't you see Moses gathering the troops Hey, fellas, this sounds kind of crazy. I need you to go home. I need you to kill a lamb. I need you to put the blood on the doorpost of your house. Probably not going to be featured in HGTV, you know, any episode of something to do for your house. But you just need to trust me. You need to do this. And if you do this, God's going to pass over your house and not going to kill anyone in it. 
Cool? All right, ready team, one, two, three, let's go. Okay, can't you see Moses kind of leading the huddle that way? But can't you see the fallout of maybe two Hebrew friends and one of them's like, bro, are you kidding me? Are we really going to do that hocus pocus of like killing a lamb? Like my kids are going to freak out when I like slaughter a lamb in the front yard, you know, like killing a lamb and rubbing its bowl of the house. Like it's going to stain the door. Like, I don't know that this is something we need to do. And the other friend is like, absolutely not. We are going to trust Moses. We're going to trust the word of the Lord. God's always been for us. Um, I trust in no other thing than the Lord. I'm going to put the blood on my doorpost and see what happens and trust God to be faithful. Okay, so those are our two case studies, right? One guy that's kind of like, eh, I don't really know about this. This is kind of crazy. And one guy that's like all in, bought in. Are you with me? So they both go home. They put the blood on their doorpost. Which house does the angel of death pass over? Both of them. Because what saved each man and his family was not his adherence to the rules. It was in the object of his faith, which was God wasn't the strength of his action. It was in the strength of his Savior. Does that make sense? And the exact same thing is true in this story. It's not the strength of Naomi that saves Ruth. It's the strength of her God that saves Ruth. Verse 19 through 22, we'll do these briefly before we end. It says, she comes back. She, she says, don't call me Naomi, which is a name that means lovely or pleasant. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. In verse 21, she says, I went away full. So when I left, when I departed from Israel the first time, I was full, which begs the question, why did you go away? If you were full, what were you looking for? Hold on a minute. You ever do that? God ever blessed your socks off and then you look anywhere and everywhere else but him in the next five minutes? God ever reminded you of his faithfulness only for it's that moment that temptation comes knocking at your door and is so attractive. I went away full, I was filled up but yet found myself lingering and living in a place of sin. But look at the second half of verse 21. But the Lord brought me back empty. Okay, now if you're an underliner in your Bible, I think we're tempted to underline empty as like, we lost everything. But what I would actually have you underline is the Lord brought me back. The Lord brought me back. And here's a great spiritual principle, biblical principle for us. It is better to be brought back empty than with, with God than to be away from him full as can be. It is always better to be empty with the Lord than to be full in the things that the world could provide. And, and it's ultimately this confession that leads us to, to the very end of this first chapter. This first chapter has a very intentional imagery. The very first verse, for there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. But the very last verse says, when she returned to Bethlehem, at the, at the, end, at, at the end of her repentance, at the end of her returning, it wasn't famine anymore, it was what? Harvest. It wasn't famine, it was harvest. When you return to the Lord, there is always a harvest of the, of the grace of God available to you. Always. When you return to the Lord, you'll never return to a field that's bare. You'll never return to a field that's uh, unfulfilling. You'll never return to a, a field that's unsatisfying. When you return to the Lord, you always return to a field that is abundantly generous and gracious to you, that fills your bare cupboards and leaves, makes your empty bins overflow. And there's even a greater harvest coming in Bethlehem than the one that Naomi saw when she came back in. One day, there's not just going to be some bread in the house of bread. One day, the bread of life's going to be there. And from our vantage point in this text, that's what we see, that there's one day coming where Jesus is going to be there. And we all need that bread, don't we? In fact, when we go to take this communion at the end of our time together today, I know it's like a, a wafer that tastes more like printer paper. I totally get that. But as we take it, 
And as we eat it and and acknowledge it, we are confessing our desperate need for the bread of heaven. Our desperate need for the bread of heaven. Our desperate need for the bread of life. And that confession has a big, long Bible word to it. It's our desperate need to repent. Be people of repentance. Martin Luther said, and, and the number one thing he nailed on the door of the Catholic Church, he said, all of life must be a life of repentance. Charles Spurgeon said it this this way, repentance grows as faith grows. Don't make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days or weeks. It takes a lifetime. Like faith itself, repentance is the inseparable companion of faith in Jesus. If we're going to have faith in Christ, we must also be people that repent. Can we recognize the Naomi's that we are aware of that need to return to the Lord? Absolutely. And we should, and we should pray for them. But we should also recognize the places that we need to return to the Lord too, that we are tempted to linger and live in the foreign land, that we dabble and find ourselves dwell. We must return. In fact, we want to talk about what it means to hope in the Lord. What it means to hope in the Lord is to find our healing in him and to find our refuge in him and to find our security in him. And one of the ways we do that biblically is we confess our sins to one another. And I'm going to get a little bold with you today. You willing for that? Some of you won't take me up on this, and that's fine. I can't make you do it. Some of you will take me up on this in this room in the next five minutes, and I think the Lord has something for you. I'm not trying to be a prophet. I just think there is a biblical reward um, to what I'm about to invite you into. This week, I was uh, at a prayer meeting on Thursday Thursday night, this past or, or the week before. I was at a prayer meeting. Uh, it was in a uh, a church in our community that's it's gathering people for prayer from, from kind of all the denominational life, a lot of unity in the body of Christ in the city of Lexington. Prayer was being hosted at a Hispanic church in, off of Alexandria Drive. And so there were Chinese Christians there, there were Hispanic Christians there, there were Eastern European Christians there, there were, you know, American Christians there, African American Christians there, white American Christians there, just all walks of life in this room, all different denominational backgrounds, all sorts of stuff. And we were together and we were praying. And, and the man that was leading our prayer time over our city and over us, said that said this verse in James chapter 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. It doesn't say confess your sins to one another and pray to one another that you might please God. That's not what it says. It doesn't say confess your sins to one another and pray for one another to check the box on your spiritual, you know, like prescription this week. It's not what it says. It doesn't say confess your sins to one another and, and, and pray for one another so that God won't be angry with you or that so you'll get blessing. It doesn't say that. It says, confess your sins to one another because there's healing there. And many of us walk around unhealed and not hopeful because of the sin that we have lingered in, that if we're not careful, we'll live in. And I sat by my brother, so his name's Marshall Wilmhoff. He's pastor of Hope Presbyterian Church on the north side of town. Um, and we looked at each other and it's like, are we really going to confess sin to each other? Like in this, in this room with people hearing, you know, like, and honestly, like I'm sitting there and the Holy Spirit just convicted my heart. I was like, Andrew, like you were rude to your wife 15 minutes before you walked out of your house. You were impatient. You lacked grace. Uh, you weren't a servant. And again, God wasn't saying that as a shaming of me. It was like, these are the things I want you to confess. And, and so we're both kind of sitting there. We're kind of looking at each other. It's kind of awkward. Are we supposed to do this out loud? Because, you know, it's awesome to confess in your mind and be like, okay, I did it. Right. And I just told him, I was like, Marshall. I was rude to my wife. Like, I was impatient. I lacked grace. I didn't look like Jesus to my family. I got to confess. And if, if you know Marshall, he's very, like, he's, he kind of has, like, a coach voice, loud. 
Um, he used to coach high school basketball. He's sitting beside me and he goes, pray, pray, you should pray. And he just like shouted it out, like pray, Andrew, pray. And in a way I was like really grateful for that because sometimes I need to be told, I need to be coached up to confess my sins and to pray. And you know what I found at the end of that? Gosh, I found a closeness with the Lord that was like, I already knew these things, but I'm glad that we're on the same page. And I'm glad that you've returned to me to find your blessing and provision and resources and satisfaction and sustain, you know, sustenance and all those things in me. I'm, I'm glad you've turned to me. I'm glad you're seeing me as the bread of life. And he did the same thing. He confessed areas in his life that even just the hours before were places of sin. And we prayed for one another. And we found hope for each other, cheering each other on. And so my bold experiment today, I don't know if you came here with a buddy or a friend or if you're here by yourself, um, but would you take a chance to, as you come to the table today, to not just make this Christian routine and ritual where you peel back the, peel back the little foil and do your you know, wafer and do your drink and nod along with the song and pray, but like before you open it and take and confess that desperate need from, for the bread of heaven that we all have, and for the blood of heaven that we all have, before you do that, would you confess your sins to one another? You don't have to go with all of them. Just ask the Holy Spirit, what am I supposed to, what do you already know that I'm supposed to agree with you about, Lord? About the condition of my heart. And maybe do that with your spouse. Maybe do that with a friend. If you're in the room today by yourself, like, come find me. I'll hang out with you and we'll confess our sins to one another. Or take a risk and, and you know, say, like, this is somebody else that confesses Jesus. I wonder if they'll be okay praying for me. <laughs> Yes, we will. You know, like invite someone into that. And I just want to encourage you in the next few minutes as the, as the group, as the band sings and invites us into further worship to not just go through the motions on this last little bit, but profess the hope you have in Christ by finding healing in the confession and prayer and repentance over the places in your life that are sinful. Could you do that with me today? And if we do, we will join in my our youngest daughter has been belting out, all of us really, but she's been like the band leader, belting out Oh Holy Night around our house, um, singing it a lot. It's beautiful. It's awesome. We're totally in the Christmas spirit, and it's one of my favorite hymns. And we had a big conversation at dinner the other night um, about this verse. But the, but the truth is, when we confess and repent, and when we find healing in the Lord, then the verse from Oh Holy Night, the stanza from Oh Holy Night is true. There's a thrill of hope. And even the weariest of us finds a reason to rejoice in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for our time together today. Um, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. Um, we thank you that you don't lead us. You don't lead us to places of despair or destruction. Like you lead us to places that we don't deserve, grace that we don't deserve, by provision that we don't deserve, opportunity that we don't deserve, promise that we don't deserve, blessing that we don't deserve. Lord, you lead us there. Uh, we, we see you in the midst of our sin, we expect to be corrected. And Lord, you just meet us with so much grace. Every time. You just meet us with so much mercy. And so Jesus, I just pray that for the Naomi in us and the Naomi in our lives, that we be given the confidence to return to you. To stop lingering in the places of sin, deceit, hiddenness. And start living fully in the places of your provision and your promise. Lord, I pray that as we come and take and eat these elements, um, that they be a reminder to us of our desperate need for you, your, your body and blood broken and shed for us. Lord, I pray that we're able to just posture ourselves with our brother or sister and say, Lord, this is an area I need to confess. 
this is an area I need to return. I need to get on the same page with you, Lord. I need to return. I've been hoping in this. I've been longing in this. I've been lingering in this. I've been dabbling in this. Like, Lord, I need to return. And just to confess and repent and pray. Pray. Get coached up. Lord, coach us up. Pray for one another. Find healing and hope for our souls. Lord, thank you for making this weary heart, giving this weary heart and the many in here a reason to rejoice. It's in your name we pray. Amen.